I'm David M. Drucker with the Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. On this episode, a special rebroadcast of my Texas Tribune Festival interview with Chris Christie. Um, I feel like I'm even more ready now to be president than I was in 2015 um, in terms of my own experience and background and knowledge and uh, ability to be able to lead. Now, that's only one factor um, in terms of how you make that decision, Um, but it's an important factor. A dozen years ago, Christie took the Republican Party by storm with his upset victory in the New Jersey governor's race. This was before Trump, yet Christie was in many ways a precursor to the future 45th president, gaining national GOP fame soon after taking office when a video of him chastising a public school teacher went viral. These days, Christie is garnering a different sort of attention. After five years of loyal service to Trump as an unofficial political advisor, the hard-charging former governor has become among his most outspoken Republican critics for his handling of the post-election period and ongoing, and I might say baseless, claims that the election was stolen. I asked Christie about that and so much more when we saw each other earlier this fall. My thanks to the Texas Tribune Festival for allowing me to rebroadcast this virtual interview here on In Trump's Shadow and to my producers at Ricochet for giving me the green light to do so. And now, Chris Christie. Let me get the easy question out of the way first. Are you running for president in 2024? Don't know. Um, Certainly wouldn't rule it out, but I think it's too early to make that call. Um, we'll, we'll probably make that decision after the midterms in 2022, have a better handle on everything that's going on, but certainly, um, something that I would consider, uh, but haven't made any kind of final decision yet. And that makes a lot of sense. Let me try and drill down and and approach the question from a different standpoint, just to try and understand your mindset. Now, I remember leading into the 2012 campaign, there were a lot of Republicans, a lot of people around the country that were encouraging you to run. And you're, the way you sort of described it then was that you didn't believe the time was right. But as we headed toward the 2016 campaign some years later, you were giving every indication in action and how you talked about that campaign that you felt the time was right and that it was something that you wanted to do. So are you more in a 2012 mindset uh, these days or more in a 2016 mindset? Let me just make one minor uh, edit to your to your characterization. In 2012, it wasn't that the time wasn't right. It said I wasn't ready. Um, I, I had been I had been governor for 15 months, and I just didn't feel I was ready to be president of the United States. And and that's what I said when I made my decision. And and so it was really personal to me that I didn't feel like I was ready for the job um, when I had to make that decision in the fall of 2011. Uh, now. It, by 2016, 2015, 16, I felt like I was ready and wanted to do it. Um, I feel like I'm even more ready now to be president than I was in 2015 um, in terms of my own experience and background and knowledge and uh, ability to be able to lead. Now, that's only one factor 
um, in terms of how you make that decision. Uh, but it's an important factor and one that wasn't present for me in 2011. So when I get these questions, which I frequently do about, do you have any regrets about not running in 12? I don't because it wasn't a decision that I made based upon a political judgment. It was a personal judgment about my readiness. Um, and so, you know, the number of factors that will come into play, readiness for the job and desire for the job is one of them. But it's only one of probably three or four that, for me at least, will will be the factors that I'll consider when deciding what to do in 2024. That's really interesting. Talk about why you feel more ready today than you ever have. I just think I'm smarter, and I think I'm more experienced, and I think I've been able to observe more people doing that job and the, the challenges that face America uh, as a whole uh, and had more time to think about it. You know, in 2014, 15, and into 16, I had a really big job I was doing every day as well, running you know the 10th largest state in the country um, and a blue state, very blue state at that. So there was treachery everywhere. Um, that I had to be ready for and dealing with. Um, I don't have that right now. You know, I'm in the private sector. I'm enjoying my time in the private sector. But it also gives you a lot more time for reflection and thought and reading and all the other things that I think help make you better prepared to deal with some of the issues that whoever the next president is going to be will have to deal with. Uh, a couple of months ago, you told the you told the characters over at the Ruthless podcast, and you made some news when you told them this, that what Donald Trump decides to do in 2024 would have no bearing on what you decide to do. Is that really the case? Yeah. Look, I don't think you you make a decision about whether to run for president or not based upon what someone else does. Um, you know, in the end, you have to decide, am I ready? Is it something that I want to do? Do I feel like I have the skills and the, the, the experience that fits the times? And is my family supportive of me doing it? To me, those are the four factors, and none of those four factors include Donald Trump or any other candidate. Um, I think that's the way you make those decisions, because anybody who tries to decide the politics of this, David, I'll just go back to 2015. Who was predicting that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee for president in June of 2015? So if you if Donald Trump just made a purely political decision um, and said, like, well, I, no one thinks I can win, so I won't run— um, or I think Jeb Bush is particularly strong, or Christie, or Cruz, or Rubio, so I'm not going to do it, um, he would have made a mistake. Uh, and I, so I don't think you ever take any of those other folks. And it's not just Donald Trump. It's whether it's Donald Trump or and name any of the other candidates who have been rumored for 2024. They make their own call. I make my own call. And then we see how the dynamic of the campaign plays out. On former President Trump, I, I wanted to ask you about him, but I wanted to start this way. Given his handling of the post-election period, and given that all these months later he continues to fan conspiracy flames that the election was stolen, that the election was rigged, um, do you think it would be better for the party and for the country, the Republican Party and for the country, if he did not run again in 2024? I think it would be better if he accepted the results of the 2020 election. And, and, and I think that would be better for the country. Um, there hasn't been any type of substantive evidence that has come forward. And believe me, if there was, David, I'd be out there fighting with him. You know, I'm the guy who was the first elected official um, to endorse him in 2016 when I got out of the race. I'm the guy who prepped him for the debates in 2016, prepped him for the debates in 2020, chaired his opioid commission, um, and advised him on any number of things over the four years he was in the White House. I wanted him to win. I voted for him both times. Um, 
But in the post-election period, he put himself ahead of the country. And I think anybody who's been honored enough to be president of the United States has to understand that when the American people give you that honor, the country has to come first. So putting aside whether he'd run or not, I think the first step that he needs to do to help the country is to say he accepts the results of the 2020 election. Um, and, you know, he can be angry about it. He can say there were certain things about it that weren't fair. Um, that's all fair game. But to say it was rigged and it was stolen, there's just no evidence of that. And what is it, 60 or 65 courts across the country, including courts that have been run by Trump nominees, have all rejected that. I guess what I'm asking, Governor, is given that he hasn't let this go, and if he doesn't let it go, does that disqualify him from running again? I don't mean legally or constitutionally, but but morally, ethically, um, given how important it is that our democracy, that people have faith in our democracy, um, is he disqualified? Or look, if he was the nominee again, and if he was running, obviously, against a Democrat again, would you be by his side the next time the same way you were the previous two times? Look, I think that his conduct in the post-election period is a significant fact factor for our voters in the Republican Party to consider if he makes himself a candidate again. But what I learned in 2015 and 2016, and it was reinforced to me, I should say, in 2015 and 2016, is the voters decide what's important. The voters decide what's qualifying and disqualifying, not me or you or anybody else. For them, they get to decide it. Um, I would just say that I think that these conspiracy theories, and not just these, but others um, that have been out there, just are not good for our party because they distract us while Joe Biden is in the midst of trying to change this country in a way that could be irreversible politically. Um, we're not paying attention as much attention to that as we should, and we're paying attention to this other stuff. So, But voters will ultimately decide it, David. I won't. Um, and if I run, I'll certainly have something to say about it. Um, but we'll wait to see if I run. And if I do, um, I think you know me well enough to know that I won't hold back. I suspect. Um, let's transition for a moment and let's talk about President Joe Biden and the Democrats. I thought we'd play a little word association game. Uh, not exactly in alphabetical order, um, but we'll start in alphabetical order. Afghanistan. A disgrace. A disgrace, and the president lied. In fact, he lied to, to the network that I work for. Um, George Stephanopoulos interviewed him, and he said, the American troops will not leave until every American has been evacuated from Afghanistan. Not all the Americans have been evacuated from Afghanistan, and our American troops left and left them behind. Afghanistan was a disgrace, and it will be a, a, a perpetual stain on Joe Biden's presidency. The coronavirus. One of the most difficult and divisive times in our country's history. Difficult because of the death and sickness that it's caused to both our individual citizens and to our economy, the, 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 the culture of our country. And divisive because it's become, in my view, much too political, much more political than it ever should have been. And, and I, so I think that it's made it even harder at a time when the country should really be coming together to fight this disease together, um, unfortunately, large parts of our society have been divided and we're arguing about things in my mind that we shouldn't be arguing about. Infrastructure, 
President Trump really wanted an infrastructure bill uh, for one reason or another, another did not get it. Uh, Joe Biden, for all of his foibles, is on the cusp, potentially, of getting bipartisan infrastructure investment from the Congress. I think rebuilding our country's infrastructure is very important. Um, I, I, I would I would prefer a bill that was even more focused on hard infrastructure than the bipartisan bill is. But I can't I don't think we should let the perfect get in the way of the good on this one. And it's one of the biggest disappointments I have from the Trump administration. He is a builder. He came to the to the White House with the expertise of being a builder. And I really thought that above everything else that he would do that. And it's disappointing that it didn't get done. Um, I'm proud of the people who are fighting to get it done now. Um, I wish it were a better bill, um, but um, it's it's good enough. And we need to have modern airports. We need to have broadband everywhere. If, if the coronavirus has taught us anything, David, it's that if you don't have broadband in this society now, you can't function. Um, so all those things are very important. Um, I wish it was a better bill, but I'd be willing to support and am willing to support the one that we have in order to get our infrastructure rebuilt. Spending. Out of control. Crazy. And this is where we've lost our way as a party, David. You know, we were always the party of fiscal conservatism, of trying to make sure we have balanced budgets and all the rest. Um, and over the last number of years, we've lost that. We've lost our, our, our edge on that. We need to get it back. Because once you let that genie out of the bottle just a little bit, like we did during the Trump years, you see what happens now that the Democrats are in charge. It's right. insane. Insane. And let me tell you, the only person who's saving this country right now from complete fiscal disaster is Joe Manchin, a Democrat. Because if he wasn't saying no, this thing would already be through the Congress and signed by the president. So crazy, insane spending. And Republicans, we have to restore our credibility on this issue, even though that's a hard thing to tell people that you don't want to give them more free stuff. But what we have to convince them is there's nothing for free. Somebody's always paying for it. Taxes. I like taxes where they are right now, and I wish that the president wouldn't raise them. I think we saw what the Trump tax cut did for the American economy. And the American economy was doing as well as it's done since the Reagan years. And that's what we should want. We should be focused on growth, not about the government. You know, Joe Biden thinks government regulation creates economic success. I believe innovation creates American economic success. And innovation is driven by growth and having the economy grow and having that private sector economy be there to support the innovators. Um, and and I, I think I, I would keep taxes right where they are right now and not raise them. And I hope um, that the president doesn't, although I fear he will. And finally, um, with our little game here, I wanted to ask you about vaccine and mask mandates. And I'd like your thoughts on them, both at the federal level, but also the state and local level. You were a governor. Um, sometimes we are willing to accept things that governors do, even if we don't want presidents to do them. But of course, President Biden has recently, through OSHA, uh, the government agency that regulates the workplace, enforced a, ma a vaccine mandate by having employers with more than 100 workers uh, either enforce vaccines, vaccinations, or weekly testing. Um, how do you feel about these policies, both at the federal level and at the local, state and local level? Well, look, um, as a conservative, um, I think government is supposed to make those decisions at the closest to the local level as they possibly can, 
recognizing what the conditions are on the ground in each individual town, each individual county in this in this country. So I'm against federal mandates. Um, I think that the president on this one, President Biden, is wrong. He's on very shaky legal ground with OSHA. I don't think they have the authority to do it based on my reading of the statute. And secondly, I think it's the bad move politically because I think it's going to harden opposition among those who have not taken the vaccine yet by saying we're not going to let the government force us to do this and certainly not the federal government. So I'm not for federal mandates for vaccine or masks. Um, I don't think the federal government should be making those decisions. As far as the state level is concerned, I would only have states making those decisions either to, you know, um, put a mask or, or a vaccine mandate into place. Vaccine mandate, I don't think you can do at the state level. I don't think you should do. Um, I think on vaccines, and I'll separate vaccines and masks, on vaccines, I think we have to persuade people to take it. And I think we've done a poor job of persuading him. And I think it goes all the way back to Kamala Harris in, in September of, of 2020 saying she would not take any vaccine that was developed and approved by the Trump FDA. Um, that was outrageous. And it started the ball rolling on politicizing what is a great scientific breakthrough. And we've seen the statistics that show the vaccines work. We should be persuading people, not mandating it. Um, and, and I think if there's going to be a mask mandate of any kind, those decisions should be made at the local level. Town, Board of Education. If they see statistics in their local community that say it, it, re it requires a mask mandate, then they should be able to do it at the local level, but not at the state level even. And I, by the same token, I don't think governors should be telling the locals they can't do it, right? The A, a real conservative, I think, says... Government is best that works at the level closest to the people. And on these things, as a governor, I wouldn't do it. And But I, what I would say to my locals is, you all decide. You make the decision based upon the statistics and the conditions in your town and what the people in your community want. Um, and, and, and I think they're much better to make those decisions much closer to them than a governor or a president. Let's talk about the state of the Republican Party and its leadership. You have a lot to say about this, and you obviously are steeped in this because you are a Republican leader, uh, have led a state, and you ran for president. Um, at the Reagan Library recently, you said, quote, pretending we won when we lost is a waste of time. We have to clear out the brush on our own side and on theirs. What did you mean by all of that? What I meant was that we're missing the forest for the trees, um, David. We're still arguing about 2020. Let me tell you, 2020 is over. You know how I know? Joe Biden's sleeping in Donald Trump's bed. And he's signing executive orders. And he's the president of the United States. 2020 is over. And what we're missing is Joe Biden trying to raise taxes. Joe, try, Joe Biden drastically increasing spending. Joe Biden botching our foreign policy and making us weak around the world. Joe Biden not paying attention to China, right? So we can't be as strong a force as we should be in fighting those policies and articulating that to the American people if we're still talking about 2020. Stop. If there was evidence, one of the 60-plus courts would have found it. If there was evidence... All of the media that's been examining this would have found it, especially the conservative media. You know, the fact is we haven't found it, and you know why? Because it doesn't exist. And so we need to move on. Am I disappointed that the pres President Trump lost? You bet I am. And do I make any apologies about supporting him in 2016 or 20? No, because in 2016, I did everything I could to make sure Hillary Clinton wouldn't be president. 
And if you think that didn't matter, look at what's happening now. It would have been happening four years earlier. So we need to focus on those things and everything, including 2020 conspiracy theories that distracts us from that is bad for the party and bad for the country. Why do you think Republican voters have been so receptive to the former president's claims? I've talked to Republican voters about this. And, you know, by the way, educated, wealthy, um, very successful in, in business or whatever field they're in. And sometimes they'll say, well, I don't think it was stolen per se, but, you know, he's got a point. Something isn't right. And other times outright, they just say, yeah, it was stolen. And, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I bet Republicans then would have said to themselves, we would never do something like that. We are the law and order party. We are conservatives. Conservatives don't do that. Where is this coming from on your side of the aisle? Well, look, I think... um First off, people on our side are horribly, horribly disillusioned by the loss itself. It was very hard for them to accept. Um, And so that starts with it. But secondly, and I think more importantly, it was the changing of the voting rules because of COVID. I've had any number of those very smart, educated folks that you're talking about say to me, well, we had all these mail-in ballots and, and, and the rules changed and, and nobody knew the rules were gonna change and it was wrong. I think that that the COVID crisis created an atmosphere that made it more acceptable to be able to discuss these things this way because, especially because of the proliferation of mail-in ballots, because we were trying to prevent people from going out to the polling place, standing in long lines and interacting with each other. Um, And so I think that's why these attempts afterwards across the country, mostly in Republican states, to, to... pass laws that are going to really enforce voter integrity are so important because we can't have legislatures and governors changing voting rules on the fly anymore. And we certainly shouldn't wait a week to find out who got elected president. And so changing these laws to make voting more accessible, but also more secure, and also make the counting of those votes more quick um, I think will ensure that the next election in 24 will be much less likely to have people saying the things they're saying now. But I think those are the two biggest factors. Horrible disappointment in the in the result in a very divided country. And second, um, the COVID rule changes that gave people the ability to say, it isn't like it always used to be. So therefore, there must be something wrong here. I wanted to ask you about how much confidence you have that four years from now, if uh, the parties aren't happy with the results, that we will certify and process the election results and have an inauguration the same way we've always had. And I want to ask the question this way. If you look at what happened on January 6th in terms of the certification votes, a majority of House Republicans voted against certification where they could. Obviously, not all of the votes they wanted to have could be held because you needed the Senate to cooperate, Republicans in the Senate, and they wouldn't. But I'm thinking ahead to the possibility, strong possibility, that Republicans win control of the House in 2022. And if they were to hang on in 2024, but either President Joe Biden or another Democrat were to win the election, a majority Republican House would be in a position, because they would have the most votes in the chamber, to refuse to certify the electoral college votes certified by the states. And remember, January 6th, there were no completing 
competing slates of, elect, of electors, and all of the results were certified. Aren't, aren't you worried that we're approaching a point where voters are going to expect this and Republicans, given what we've seen from them so far, may just comply? No, I believe our party, if they have the responsibility in their hands, will execute it consistent with the Constitution and do their duty. Look, you know, David, um, I hate to be sound cynical, um, <laughs> but I'm going to allow myself to sound cynical for a moment here. That was a free vote. When you're in the minority, and I saw this in my legislature all the time, um, when you're in the minority, you can make a lot of free votes. Um, which you know aren't going to count, aren't going to change the result, but you do it for your constituency, you do it for you know folks that you're trying to please. And I think that's what a lot of those votes were. Um, I think if the Republicans had been in the majority, if they are in 2024, as you talked about, I think they will certify the results if, in fact, the results um, have been certified by the states. And so I don't worry about that. Um, and, and I will tell you, too, the other time it would happen when I was governor was you get a lot of Democrats voting for ridiculous things when they were in the majority because they knew I'd veto it. I remember having one state senator call me one time and say, look, I don't want to vote for this bill, but you're going to veto it. Right. So I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> so, you know, there's times when I hate to sound cynical about folks in the legislative branch as an executive branch guy. But sometimes they do things that are easy rather than things that are hard. Uh, but I think if we have the majority in 2024, which I believe we will, at least in the House, if not in both chambers, that if they're certified by the states, that our members will do the right thing. Yeah, here in Washington, we call that vote no, hope yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, another thing that struck me about your remarks at the Reagan Library was your your time discussing uh, this quote, um, who we are as Republicans let me go back, if you guys can edit this. Another thing that struck me about your remarks at the Reagan Library uh, was your time discussing the topic, who we are as Republicans, quote unquote. And you talked about who we are as Republicans uh, from your perspective and spent a lot of time discussing that, what, what you'd like to think Republicans are. Uh, but I wanted to ask you if the party now isn't really... Donald Trump's party versus Ronald Reagan's party in terms of its sort of populist, aggressive, you know, somewhat inward looking approach versus the sort of optimistic international internationalist outlook that at least Reagan projected. Um, because I feel like Trump really did have an impact on the party in a, in a generational way. But as someone who's lived it, am I right about that? Uh, look, I think he did. There's no doubt he had an impact on the party. Um, so Let's dispense with the answer to that one really quickly. The answer is yes. Um, now, I don't. I do think there's a way to be able to take the best of both, David, and 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 I and that's what I was trying to do in that speech. And I think there is a way to do that. Um, but it, you're going to have to articulate it really well. I don't want us to become a party of either or, because I think an either or party is a losing party, and that's why I point out in the speech that you know we we lost the White House the House, and the Senate, all within two years. The only other time in the Republican Party's history that has happened is by Herbert Hoover. And when Herbert Hoover, Hoover lost that between 30, 1930 and 1932, we then went on to have the Democrats control the White House 
for 28 of the next 36 years and control the House of Representatives for 48 of the next 52. Our country can't afford that type of drought for the Republican Party. And so we need to be able to incorporate both sides of it and use one Reagan phrase that that I think is appropriate here to set up a big tent. I, I think there are those who can understand, like I do, the limits of American military power, which is, I think, a Trump principle, but also understand that part of what makes us the economic power we are are our friendships and alliances around the world. The two are not mutually exclusive. And so we can have a foreign policy that is very, very careful about how we use American military power, but uses American economic power to continue to work on our alliances and our friendships around the world, ones that the Chinese and the Russians, our major adversaries, simply don't have. So I think there's ways to to, to meld the two. And finally, Governor Christie, as we wrap up our conversation here at the Texas Tribune Festival, I wanted to ask you how much Republicans should be concerned by the fact that they have not been able to win a national popular vote in a presidential election um, since 2004 and before that since 1988. That's not how you win the White House. But is this something that concerns you and is it a problem? Well, look, I, I, I didn't win a majority of the vote when I ran for governor in, in, in 2009. I won 48 and a half percent of the vote in a three way race. But then in 2013, I got 61% of the vote. Um, I think if we do things that the American people agree with, and that they think are making our country stronger and opportunity more available, we can get to that. I do think there's a demographic thing to understand, though, too, um, which I think the census is showing is beginning to change a little bit. You know, you have huge numbers of people in California and New York in particular um, where you know, huge vote totals are run up and they're big blue states in my state as well, big blue states that run up big numbers. And a lot of our red states are our smaller population states. So we're always going to be in a little bit of a bind on the popular vote. But that's why our founders set it up the way they did. They didn't want New York and California, uh, you know, um, or states like that in, in those days, New York and Virginia, um, running the entire country. And so states like Rhode Island, and New Hampshire and Vermont um, could have a, a, a strong say in who is going to be president of the United States. So in one sense, I am concerned because I think it's, an, it's a reflection of how well our policies are being received and adopted by the American people and endorsed. But there also is a demographic shift that has happened in our country. But it seems to be reversing. You see who's picked up congressional seats this time, David. Places like Texas and Florida, Arizona more reddish states um, that are trending. And those are people that are moving mostly in Arizona and Texas from California and in Florida from New York and New Jersey. So, you know, I think that we could wind up seeing that change a little bit over the course of the next 10 years. So I have some concern about it, but that's why the electoral college system is the smartest system and why the another example of why the founders were so brilliant in balancing the, uh, the needs of a continental country. Governor Chris Christie, thanks so much for joining us today. Dave, it's always great talking to you, and thanks. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. On a daily basis, you can catch my work online at www 
www.washingtonexaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.